I want to start uh, just thinking about this. Have you guys have ever uh, in your life kind of prejudged something based on a false understanding of it and just kind of rejected it out of hand? Like you thought you knew what it was and you're like, yeah, no, that's not for me. I don't, I don't want that. I'm not really into that. Uh, this happened with me. Um, I was, uh, I grew up in central Pennsylvania near, near Hanover, Pennsylvania, if anybody's familiar, right? And so, uh, so uh, it's not the, the, it's not really a, a beacon of exotic culinary uh, experiences, right? There's a lot of all-you-can-eat buffets. Uh, there's a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch food. If you want varieties of potato chips, that's your place, right? Um, we don't ever buy Lay's in our, in our family, just so you know, except my daughter's. Yes, there. Utz's, Martin's, right? Those, those are acceptable brands. So anyways, I digress. So I moved to California. And, uh, and, um, and I was as poor as, as I've been in my life. I was working as a barista at Starbucks. I didn't have any transportation, so I was rollerblading to work. And one of the things that I learned is that when you're rollerblading at 4.45 in the morning, part of the way they keep the grass green in California is they have sprinklers that run all night. So I'm like rollerblading down the sidewalk, getting blasted by a sprinkler, going into work. Didn't have much money for food, and there was a there was a sushi restaurant that was a couple shops down in the in the plaza. And so what would happen is uh, the 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 owners and the people that worked there they they would come and get coffee in the morning, and then at the end of the night when they were shutting down, sometimes they would have extra uh, sushi rolls and they would bring them over uh, and they would drop them off for us. And so at first I was like, ah, you know, it's like raw fish. It probably tastes fishy. It's cold. Like everything about it doesn't sound good. I'm not really interested. But my hunger got the better of me. And, uh, and so I tried it and, and came to find that it doesn't taste anything like fish, uh, and the texture is amazing, and, uh, and it became like my favorite food, right? And so if I hadn't been forced to that, I, I had prejudged it in a way that would have kept me from experiencing what is one of my favorite things uh, to eat. Uh, we do the same things, right, with TV shows and books, and, uh, and I remember everybody's talking about, like, oh, The Greatest Showman, it's, like, so great, and the songs are so great, and, and I'm like, oh, you know, I don't need it, you know, whatever, you know, and then finally we were over at my parents' house one night, and they, and they put it on, and right off the bat, you know, it's like, whoa, and I was like, this is awesome, <laughs> right? Halfway through the movie, I'm crying, but I thought that it wasn't something that I needed, Right? And so the reason that I tell you these stories is that, man, I think that there's a danger that sometimes we reject Jesus, we reject uh, the Christian faith based on a false understanding of what we think it's all about, rather than the reality of what is presented to us in the Bible. And so my hope is this morning is that, uh, man, if it, whether you're accepting Jesus on a false pretense or you're rejecting Jesus on a false pretense, uh, and both are damaging, to be honest, right? Uh, there's people that, that would say, I'm a Christian, but what they're, they're putting their faith in is not really the Jesus of the Bible. And that's almost as bad as rejecting the Jesus of the Bible. My hope is that you could put whatever preconceived ideas you have aside for a few moments this morning and just look at what the text says and begin to evaluate it based on that. And so we're going to dig in. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 um, is where we're going to start. And uh, just to give you the context of where we're at, Jesus, uh, we've been following his ministry. Uh, he's, he's for three years, he's taught, he's healed people. Uh, he's taught these incredible, insightful things. He's cast out demons. He's done these miracles and signs and wonders. And in the process has run afoul of the religious leaders of the day. And so a little sidebar, if, uh, if you're like, man, I, Jesus is kind of interesting to me, but I can't stand the church. The church has wronged me. There's things that are broken and messed up and, and religious leaders have, have put me off 
off to it, hey, you're in good company because that's where Jesus was at, right? Like he was, his main opposition was against the religious leaders of the day. And I'm not saying all church leaders, but I'm saying those that would take it and use it for their own. There's nights when I'm flipping through the church channel like on TV and I see things that, um, that, that I reject, right? So, so if your understanding of Christianity is based on what you're watching on television where it's like, man, it seems if I just send this guy a check and I say these, uh, these prayers, then like I'm going to be good, right? Like I reject that too. That's not where we should be. Rant over. Here we go. So Jesus has been arrested. He's been beaten. He's been falsely accused. He's been mocked. Uh, he's been passed around to all the different leaders because nobody really wanted to be the one to finally say, like, yeah, let's, let's kill him. And finally, they decide to crucify him. They take him up to a hill. They nail his hands and his feet to a wooden cross. They let him hang there where you essentially suffocate to death. Uh, he reaches the point where he dies, and then to make sure that he's dead, they take a spear and they shove it into his side just to make sure that he's dead. And now it's coming to evening. It's getting ready to be a high holy day. It's the Sabbath. It's also the Passover, so, so it, um, nothing can happen on the Sabbath. So they need to get his body down off the cross uh, before that, and that's where we pick it up. Uh, so it says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was the, the Roman uh, local governing authority. And so anything that they needed to do, they needed to get his permission to do it. And so this, this rich follower of Jesus kind of sticks his neck out. This was a, a risk for him to do this. He went and he asked for permission to take Jesus' body uh, and, to, and to be able to put it in his own tomb. So he went to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And so basically what happened is they took him, they wrapped him in a cloth, and they put him in there. And then the plan was after the Sabbath was over, they were going to go back and properly bury him, like uh, with the embalming, spices, and the herb, everything, wrap him up so that he could be properly buried. But this was just kind of like a quick fix to kind of to hold it over uh, for the time. And so verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together before Pilate. So all the religious leaders that had crucified Jesus, that were opposed to Jesus, go before the Roman leader. And they say, sir, we remember how that imposter, meaning Jesus, said while he was still alive that after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. In a nutshell, they come and say, hey, like, the worst thing that could happen is if, is if his followers come and they take his body and then they fake his resurrection. And we don't want that to happen. So they send a bunch of hardened Roman guards <laughs> to go to the tomb uh, to seal the stone door and to set a guard around it to make sure that nobody touches or messes with the body of Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, so now we're coming up to, uh, to Sunday morning, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
Now, I got to say, when I, when I come up here to preach and I get my, like, uh, my theme music coming on, that gets me kind of pumped up. It gets me ready, right? But, but when you show up and there's an earthquake <laughs> and then you roll a stone back and then you take a seat on it, like, that's, that's a boss move, right? You're just like, what, right? No question about who's in control of the scene in this moment, right? The angel is on the scene and everybody knows it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. Whenever uh, angelic beings and heavenly beings are described in scripture, they, they don't even have words for it. <clears throat> and so they'll say things like, it's like lightning. It, it kind of was like snow, right? Because there's not words to describe what it's like when you experience and encounter someone like this. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These hardened Roman soldiers that were sent there to guard the tomb for one purpose, don't let anything happen, the angel appears and they're on their face, right? Uh, they've got their swords, they've got their spears, they've got their armor, doesn't matter. They're down on the ground before him. And so uh, maybe you've thought this before, maybe you've heard somebody say, like, hey, when I get before God, he's got some explaining to do. I'm going to go to him and I say, hey, why did you let this happen? And why? Let, let me just tell you, friends, that's not how it's going down, <laughs> right? This isn't, this isn't God. This is an angel, right? The angel comes on the scene and they're prostrate, right? And that's what happens over and over. And Every angel, when they show up, typically the first thing they say is, don't be afraid, right? There's only reason, one reason why you say that is if, if people are afraid of you, right? And so the angel shows up. The soldiers are down. Ladies, you're going to like this next part, right? Soldiers are down on the ground. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. So all, all the soldiers are laying on the ground. The two women are standing there. They're not down, right? And then, ladies, you're not surprised, right? Uh, you're like, that sounds about right, right? They got their spear, their sword, shield, the armor. They're down. Two ladies with, like, carrying, like, linens and some perfume are like, should we leave? Should we come back? <laughs> like, everything cool here, Right? He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not fear, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Now, it's kind of interesting. You know, in all my years, of, uh, I've preached a number of Easter sermons. I've listened to a bunch of them. Um, you know, in my mind, I, I kind of always thought that the, the stone was rolled away for Jesus to get out. But really, the stone was rolled away so that the ladies could see in. So they could see that he had been resurrected. Right? Jesus doesn't need somebody to roll the stone out of the way. As, in his resurrected power, we see later as he's resurrected, he has a physical body and yet he's able to, to, to go into, enter into rooms and he's able to leave the tomb. He's able to do these incredible things because he's Jesus, right? He tells them, the angel tells the ladies, go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So finally, the guards kind of wake back up, right? <laughs> They're kind of like, they go into the city. 
They're like, so we were standing guard, like you told us. All of a sudden, there was an earthquake. This lightning guy <laughs> showed up. Little blurry on what happened after that. Um, but the next thing I knew, the stone uh, is rolled away. The tomb is empty. What do you want to do? Now, in this moment, you would think maybe the Pharisees would be like, oh, my goodness. I think we crucified the Son of God. God, forgive us. God, help us. Lord, we didn't know what we were doing. Please. And here's the crazy thing. If they had said that, he would have forgave them. That's why Jesus died. To offer them forgiveness. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. If they had just positioned themselves in that way, he would have given them forgiveness. So maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're like, man, I, I've done some things. I don't know if I can forgive myself. I, I don't know that I can believe that God would forgive me. I want you to know that he can and he will. He claimed that power by rising from the grave. And so he has the ability to forgive you, but, but you have to put yourself in a position. Sadly, the Pharisees don't do that. What the Pharisees do is they double down on their hardness of heart. Let's look at what they say. So when they had assembled with the elders and the taking council, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, I got some questions about that story, right? We've got Roman guards that were specifically sent to the tomb for one purpose, right? They're specifically there to guard. And you're telling me that you guys all got tired and fell asleep. And then while you were sleeping, a bunch of humble fishermen and ex-tax collectors came in and stole the body. And somehow you know this. So one of you must have been awake. So maybe you popped your eye open, but you were scared of the fishermen. And so, so you just stayed down until they let, right? Like there's, there's some elements that don't make sense about this story. It doesn't add up, but, but I don't know if you've seen this in our culture. If, if, if the same lies kind of told over and over again, at some point people just stop questioning it. They just start to believe it. But here's one thing that we can take away from this, right? There was no body in the tomb. Even the Pharisees are admitting this, right? Because if there was a body in the tomb, they would have said, hey, problem solved. Everybody come check it out. Here's the body of Jesus. Not resurrected, not risen from the grave. So clearly the body was gone. And so there'll be a special on History Channel next week about, we think we found the secret tomb of Jesus. We're sending the cameras in. We expect to see his body wrapped in, right? It's not there. It's never going to be found. The, 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 Jesus and, and the Pharisees essentially admitted at this point, hey, the body's not there, so let's just make up a story about where it went. So he says, if this comes to the governor's ears, because they could be killed for dereliction of duty, right? If it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So at the time of this writing, this was still, um, you know, just years after Jesus had been uh, walking on the earth. And so the people were still alive, you know, the, and this was the story that was circulating at the time. Now, I could have done a, a whole, I was talking to somebody after the first service, and I could have done a whole sermon on what's your price, right? Because how many people get paid off? <laughs> how many people got bought out? People had a price. But that's not my sermon. So we'll have to just hold that for another day. What I want to talk to you, I want to come back to this, this opening idea of these misunderstandings of the Christian faith. And the first one that I want to talk about is this idea that following God means that you will never suffer. 
Somehow this idea is out there in, in, in the realm of Christianity that, that coming to Jesus means that he exists uh, to give you all the things that you want right here and now in your life, to make you happy, to, to fill you up, and, and to bless you with abundance in, in such a way that, that, that you're overflowing. And, that, um, and, and, and sometimes he does that, right? But, um, but he, doesn't, he didn't go to the cross to, to make your 401k succeed, right? That's not, that's not why Jesus died. And, uh, and sometimes we get this idea that... Um, that you'll never suffer. But think about the two uh, significant stories that intersect with our culture, Christmas and Easter, right? Christmas is all about uh, God coming to earth as a man, not as a ruling king, not as the leader and commander of an army, but as a simple baby born to a couple of peasants on the run for their life. They have to flee to Egypt because his life is being threatened. It's a story of struggle and trial and difficulty. And, and Joseph didn't book through Travelocity. And so there was no room at the end. And so they, so they had to go and, and the baby was born. And they, right, it's, it's about struggle. It's about suffer. And then Easter <laughs> is about the perfect sinless son of God who came to earth, who lived in a way that constantly just gave and exuded love. He treated everyone the way that he wanted to be treated. He, he showed that he loved his neighbors himself. And, and in return... He was reviled and he was mocked and he was beaten and he was beaten again. In fact, you weren't supposed to be beaten and crucified. It was an either-or scenario. And so the Romans said, hey, maybe if we just beat him bad enough, they'll accept that. And so they beat him as much as they were allowed to. And they said, surely this is enough punishment for this man. And they said, no, crucify him. And so he got both. And then he experienced separation from the Father on the cross. Man, it's a story of suffering and struggle. And so how can we look at both those stories and then say, so clearly, <laughs> I'm meant to only experience happiness, joy, and satisfaction in my life, right? The reality is, is that, that we come to know Christ through sufferings. God doesn't cause every suffering that you experience in your life, but he can use everyone to draw you closer to him. And so there's two ways that this is incredibly practical and helpful in our lives. There's probably way more than two, but there's two that I'll talk about. Um, because the gospel isn't just about getting your ticket for heaven. The gospel is not about what happens when you die. The gospel is for today. It's for how we live here and now, right? Right now, right? And so, so the one thing is this. Has anybody gone through a, a trial, a struggle, a difficulty? I mean, sometimes we bring it on ourselves. We do it. You're rollerblading at 4 a.m. You're running the sprinkler. That's, that's on you, right? That's your fault, right? But sometimes something happens and you're like, man, God, I don't know why this happened. I don't know where this came from. I'm not aware of any sin that I did that brought this upon me. And yet I'm, I'm struggling. Has anybody ever been through that, right? A few of us. <laughs> few honest people, right? Now, I, never mind, I'll skip that. Um, here's where it's helpful. <laughs> Get to the point, Ezra. If God accomplished the greatest thing that he ever accomplished in Jesus through suffering and through trial and through struggle, and if Jesus prayed to the Father before it happened, Father, if there's any other way I ask that you take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And God said, yes, I, I hear you and I love you and, and you're, you're my son and I'm well pleased in you, but this is the way. If God was able to accomplish that, then is it possible that even if you don't understand the suffering and struggle that you're going through in your life, that God has an ordained purpose for it? That God could bring some good thing out of it that you may never understand? You might not see it in this life, 
But at least then you're not suffering without purpose. That, that you can trust that, that there may be some purpose, some reason, some hope, some good that will come out of it that maybe you just don't see. But if you did that with Jesus, maybe he's doing that with you. And the second thing is this, that, that Jesus, when he suffered, he suffered separated from the Father. He knew what it was like. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what it was like to be separated from God. And because of that, you and I will never have to know what that is like. If we put our faith in him, he will be with us through every trial, through every fire, at the bottom of the ocean, in the belly of the whale, wherever we are, there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. He will be with us. And so we will never have to go through alone. And so what does this mean? What this means is that you can fail and you can be broken and you can be, be torn up and the world can look at you and say, you have failed and you can live a life of purpose and joy. You may mourn, you may grieve, you may experience sorrow, but there will still be a well of joy within you no matter what happens that comes only from that relationship with God and there's nothing that can separate you from that. It, it, the gospel makes you bulletproof, right? <laughs> or bulletproof is probably not the right example because you take the bullets but you can keep going, right? Following God does not mean that you will never suffer. If that's the, the, the gospel, the, and, and, and in the room this size, I'm imagining that there's a scenario like this. Hey, I, I tried to go get closer to God. I started trying to read my Bible. I started going to church and then that happened, Right? That diagnosis, that broken relationship, that financial failure, that loss of job, whatever it was. And I, and I was like, man, maybe this religion thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. And so you walked away. And what I want you to see is that it wasn't God that failed and it wasn't necessarily you that failed. What was broken was your understanding of what, what the gospel is all about, what it's meant uh, to be, to walk with Jesus. And so I would encourage you this morning to to maybe look at it through a different lens. The second thing I want to point to is this, that um, we get this idea that faith is opposed to reason and logic. And, and I take you back to where the angel said, hey, Jesus is risen from the grave. Come, take a look. The body's not here. See for yourself. When Jesus appears later to the disciples, he says, hey, go ahead and put your hands in the, in the holes. Uh, put, put your hand in my side. Like, I'm real. You can check me out, Right? We might have expected, some of us with, with our thought, that, that we just have to do it with blind faith. I feel like I talk to people all the time, and that's their understanding of, of Christianity. Well, you know, I, just, I, I guess I just got to trust God. I'll never understand. I guess I just got to trust. And there are things you will never understand, certainly. But there's a lot of things that God wants to show you. I lived for a long time with this sort of disconnected uh, thing where, where I was, I, I, you know, I, I loved school, I loved learning, I liked math, I liked spreadsheets, I liked things that add up and balance and kind of all come together. And then over here I had this faith in Jesus, but the, a big part of this was like, man, I'm, I'm just going to close my eyes and trust over here. But here I'm going to work it all out. And so what, what changed for me when I really grew and matured is when I started coming to a, a men's Bible study group and we started reading guys like A.W. Tozer and, and C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I started to see that, um, man, God's logic and reason and order um, and the profound mystery of the gospel is um, so um, logically designed. And, and I don't, you don't have to check your brain at the door to check into Christianity. In fact, you're going to engage muscles that you forgot that you had if you start to get serious about it. Um, some of you have been digging in a lot longer than I have, but, you know, 20 years of just really 
seriously in earnest digging in. And what I found is I used to have these questions like, man, I don't know if I want to ask this question because I'm afraid, I'm afraid what the answer is. I'm afraid there's not an answer. And when I had the courage to finally push in, what I found is that the foundation is far more firm than I ever realized. And if you're willing to push in, you'll find the same too. That logic and, 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 and reason aren't uh, opposed to each other. And, and here's what happens when we get it wrong. I, I watched on National Geographic last night. I got sucked into this movie uh, called Killing Jesus. Has anybody seen, seen that on Nat Geo? Good for you guys. Don't watch it. Uh, <laughs> Some really, good, uh, some really good actors. They had one of the elves, or I mean the dwarves from Lord of the Rings in there. I mean, like these are like high quality actors. They had good costumes. They had good setting. Uh, it, was, it was well done. The dialogue was good. So I start watching. I'm like, okay, I like this. is a different take. Um, but it's going on. And after a while, I'm like, why isn't Jesus doing any miracles? Right? And so what they presented was this Jesus who, um, who was countercultural, who protected the woman that was caught in adultery, that he went to the, the lepers and he gave them a nice cold drink of water and he touched their face and he, and he loved them, but he never did any miracles. He had dinner at Lazarus' house, but he didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. There was these rumors that, that he was using sorcery to do things, but they never showed a feeding of the 5,000 or a walking on water or any of these miracles. And, uh, and after a while, Trina came and she's like, why are you watching this? And I was like, well, I got to see what they do with the resurrection. Like, what are they going to do? And so it goes through. He runs afoul of the religious leaders. They take him. They beat him. They crucify him. They put him in the tomb. And then the next morning, instead of the, the, the two ladies that we see here in Scripture going, there's a, a cast of about 12 that go to check out the tomb because they paid all these actors, so I guess they wanted to use them, right? So, so they all go, the stone is rolled away, they walk in, and there's no body, and they all kind of look at each other, and they're kind of like, well, uh. the next scene, <laughs> Peter's in the boat. I don't mind ruining the ending for you because I don't want you guys to see it, right? So I'm just going to ruin it. <laughs> next scene, Peter's in the boat. He's been fishing all night. There's no fish in his nets. He's looking frustrated. He kind of stops and he just prays to God. And all of a sudden you hear this flopping and he looks over and his nets are full of fish. And he looks up to heaven. He's like, yes, Jesus, thank you. And he looks out to the shore and I expect he's going to see Jesus on the shore. But it's just the other disciples. And he says, guys, he's back. Jesus has come back to us. But it's not the, the physically resurrected Jesus that we see in Scripture. It's the essence of Jesus. <laughs> the spirit of Jesus has returned, right? That Jesus, I mean, Jesus is, is all the things they showed in there, but he's way, way more. And the Jesus they showed in that show is not worth giving your life for. He's not worth dying for. And that Jesus can't accomplish our salvation, It's playtime. <laughs> I usually have something, but I got nothing on that one. So what they tried to do is they tried to clean Jesus up. They said, hey, the modern, the modern viewer, the modern mind can't handle those miracles. Come on. Like, people aren't going to buy into that. No, no demons. That would be weird. People get freaked out by that. Let's just clean Jesus up to a, a socially acceptable version of Jesus. And I'm sure somebody had a good intention where they say, like, man, if we strip all that stuff out, then I guess people will believe in Jesus. But when you edit it, him down to that level, he's not worth believing in at that point. He's just a nice guy. Right? He's just a nice guy who lived and, and tragically died, but that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. 
And I think the thing that we need to see is that, 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 that God is a God of order. And, and, and science used to be about God created the world. Let me try and understand how he did it. Because there's a creator, I know that there's logic and reason to how it was created. And so I come to, the, to, to his creation trying to understand the order that I know is there because a the creator put it in there. And at some point, science flipped to, let's begin with the assumption that there is no God. Now let's look at what we've got and try and figure out how that could exist without a creator, without an initiating force, without anything, right? And, and, and so it's this, this false idea that logic and faith can't exist together, but the reality is that they were, they were knit together from the beginning. The third thing I want you to see, Christianity, uh, some people believe it's either all about fear or all about joy, but when, when, the, when, the, when the ladies saw the angel, it says that they went away with, uh, with fear and great joy together. Now, some of you grew up in a church tradition where it was all about fear, right? So it's like God is angry. He's got some lightning bolts like geared up, right? And he's like, he's ready to come at you if you step out of line. So what do you do? You make a bunch of rules to make sure you stay in line. And then you keep all the rules. And then you say to God, hey, hey, God, you can't. Uh, contractually, I'm good because I did all this stuff. So you, and so it's really just a way of trying to control God. It's trying to keep God under control and say, hey God, I did all this stuff so you can't, you, can't, you can't judge me. I know you want to, but you can't, right? On the other end, we have, we have the, 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 the no fear, all joy. In this version, God is a friendly grandpa. He's got a nice white beard. He dozes off every once in a while, so sometimes he misses some of the stuff that's happening here on earth. But when he wakes up, he'll give you a Werther's original and maybe like a $5 bill. And if you screw up, he's like, hey, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, don't worry about it, you know. Not a... And so you get this very cheap grace. It's a God who doesn't care about justice. It's a God who doesn't care about what we do. And where that ends up, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in, in Germany in World War II, uh, here, here's what he said about cheap grace. He's like, cheap grace is the reason that the Nazis rose to power in Germany. Uh, because the German church adopted this cheap view of grace that said, hey, some, some good people need to stand up, but, but God can't expect us to stand up against this. So surely God will understand if we just, if we just kind of step back and, and let this happen and, and see, uh, see Jews getting taken to concentration camps and seeing the disabled and, and those that were viewed as unvaluable in society taken off and killed. Surely God, God can't expect us to step in that. We're just, he'll forgive us. He'll understand. That's the end result of cheap grace. But here's the reality. The gospel is not the perfect blend of those two things. It's actually this. It's, it's a reverence. It's an awe. It's a respect. It's a wonder at God that is the source of our joy. Our joy comes out of knowing that we worship this amazing, wonderful, powerful creator. And that's how we get joy. Not happiness, which is situational, but joy, which is everlasting, that comes out of what was finished by Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross when he rose from the grave. Our joy rests in that. And so whatever happens today, it doesn't matter because it can't change that. And if you're rooted in that, hey, we have good days, we have bad days, we have ups, we have downs. But our joy is set in something that God has control over. Fourth one, this is, you know, I don't even have time to go into this, right? But there's this idea that Christ, Christianity is oppressive uh, to women and that, it, that it's backwards and it's outdated and it's patriarchal. But, but who did God choose to honor 
by being the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. It's two women, right? And, 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 and at this time, in that culture, their testimony wouldn't have even been admissible in court. So if you were making this up, you would have chose a more acceptable witness, right? You wouldn't have chose two women because their culture didn't value their vo voice, but, but Scripture values their voice. Jesus valued their voice. And so if that's the idea that you have, you might be responding to some sort of uh, sect or variation of Christianity that is oppressive to women, but that's not what the Bible is doing. The Bible honors men and women in our unique createdness, and it honors us by recognizing and honoring our distinctions as men and women, but celebrating the value and the worth in both. That's how you truly honor it, not by just like flattening it all over and just saying it's all the same, right? God has made each of us unique, and the more that we celebrate that, the more we glorify him. So what do we do if we, if we, if we look at this, this true picture of Jesus in the Bible? What are we called to do? There's two things, and I'll point them out quickly in closing. One is that uh, the ladies got the front row seat to Jesus' resurrection because they were seeking them, right? The angel said, hey, I, I know that you're seeking Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean if you're not seeking Jesus, you won't find him because there was two disciples that were walking away from Jerusalem, dejected, and Jesus came and appeared to them and gave them a Bible study in the Old Testament about how it was all about him, right? So, so sometimes Jesus will come find you, but if you want to be in position to see Jesus, it's about seeking him. And uh, man, we do a 6 a.m. prayer call every other Thursday, Keith and I and a couple other uh, people, and, uh, and this past week I slept in and I missed it. I forgot about it. I'm just confessing to you guys, right? Sometimes I don't feel like waking up early. Sometimes after a long day, I don't feel like coming in and doing Bible study. Sometimes I don't feel like opening up my Bible. But, but here's what I would say. When I do it, when I seek him, when I put myself in position, man, I've seen him do some amazing things. It's not every time. It's not a formula. Get up at six, open to page 720 in your Bible, and you will see God, right? Sometimes you will. But if you're sleeping in, you definitely won't, right? There's value in showing up. And God loves to reveal himself. And don't you love, the second part of it is this, that, that they were obedient. The angel said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to quickly go tell the disciples that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. The plan is to meet Jesus in Galilee. Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee. Everybody go to Galilee. That's where you're going to see him. And the ladies run. They're eager to be obedient. And as they're running, it's almost like Jesus looks and is like, Oh, man, look out. They're so excited to obey. I can't wait for Galilee. I'm going to go see him now, right? And he, and, he, and, and he says, greetings. And he shows up before them, and they grab a hold of his feet. Not the, the essence in the air of the spirit of Jesus. They grab a hold of his feet because he's there with them. And so if you want to experience Jesus in the way that they experience Jesus, it comes in obedience, the quicker and more enthusiastically you're obedient to him. And, and, it, and it just makes sense, right? If, if you really believe that Jesus died for your sins and he gave his very life for you, then why wouldn't you want to do the things that honor and glorify him? Why wouldn't you want to be as obedient as you could? Why wouldn't you say, hey, my life, man, my life is over. My life is for him now because he gave his life for me. And so the more that you understand the gospel, it's not this get out of jail free card. It's a complete change in the way that you look at the world and think about your life and your purpose and your meaning and your identity and what you're here to do. 
And obedience just leads to greater joy, greater reverence in all who God is. Uh, I'll share it real quick. I don't even have time to do it, but I'm going to do it anyways, right? When you, when you begin this moment of salvation, right, when you first start, you have this, uh, this picture of, hey, my, uh, uh, I'm becoming, uh, I'm more aware of God's holiness, and I'm more aware of my brokenness, and so the cross is the bridge between those two things. As you continue to grow, you become more aware of God's holiness, and you become more aware of your brokenness. And so you might think, oh man, I thought it would like the line would come closer together. But the reality is, is you become more aware of like, wow, God's way more amazing than I thought. And I'm actually more broken down than I realized. But look at what's cool. The bigger this gets, the bigger this gets, right? The more that we understand who God is, the more that we understand who we are, the more that we, the, the cross bridges that gap in our life. And we become more aware of the weight of the cross. I've got 30 more minutes, but I'm going to let it go. <laughs> You'll have to come back for the rest of it next week. Um, but man, I, I, I hope that today, and band, I'll invite you to come on up. I, I hope that on this Easter Sunday, my prayer for you would be that you would come face to face with the real Jesus. Not the Nat Geo Jesus. Not the, uh, not the I grew up in, in this or that church Jesus, but the Jesus who is revealed in scripture and who wants to have a relationship with you, that's who I hope that you will come face to face with today. And, and in case it wasn't clear from the message, man, we're all, we're all broken by sin. There's no perfect people in this room. If you're 20, you might struggle to believe that. If you're 80, you know it for sure, right? And the good news is that God doesn't expect us to be perfect. That's why Jesus came. He did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death that we deserved. And he offers us salvation freely. It's by grace that we've been saved, not of our own works, lest anyone should boast. You don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. In fact, you can't do anything to earn your salvation. And so what you do is you say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are in Scripture. I believe that you died in my place on that cross so that I could be forgiven and adopted and I thank you for it. And I gladly, with joy, with fear and great joy, I receive this incredible gift that I could never earn or deserve, but I thank you for giving it to me. And if you say that, the Bible tells us that you enter into salvation. And then you get to enjoy the great work of growing closer to Jesus. But you're not earning any closer to salvation. Your salvation is purchased by Jesus and is given to you as a gift. And you don't have to wait. You can take that up today. And I would encourage you, if you've never done it, that today is the day. We don't know if we'll have tomorrow. You don't know if you'll have this afternoon. But what you have right now is this moment to make that choice, to commit, to follow Jesus, to believe that what he said is true. And I would encourage you, if that's where you're at, today is the day. In fact, I want to just ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm just going to offer you a chance. If that's where you're at, if you're like, Ezra, yes. The, uh, as, you, as you share what the Bible says today, it resonated as true in my heart and I want to give my life to Jesus. I, I, uh, I want to receive this free gift of salvation. Here's what you do. You just pray that prayer that I, that I spoke of earlier and you say this. You say, Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God who died for my sins and I gladly receive the free gift of grace, forgiveness, mercy, adoption, identity, purpose, hope that you have given to me today. And I ask that you show me how to live for you. And I thank you for it in the name of, of your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, one last